What's up, Five Threads? Good to see so many faces. Welcome to Retro Game Night. We are coming at you live at Five Threads Brewery in Westlake Village, California. Make some noise for the people listening in at home. We are a podcast centered on all things in retro gaming and pop culture. We cover everything from video games, comics, animated series, and film. Uh, I am your host, Damien DiCarlo. I am joined with my two best buddies from Retro Game Night. I got James and Josh. Please Hello. give it up for my crew. Hey, everybody. You guys ready? Always. Back, Always. Back yes. going back in time. Back in October 1992, this happened. Who remembers this? They, they, they still don't make it like this anymore. I walk down the street humming this tune. I could do that, but I don't want to. <laughs> I can't believe Disney Plus makes me want to skip this every time I want to watch it. No, I'm not going to do that. Sorry. How, how dare Sacrilege. they? You have to wait for the bell. Ladies and gentlemen, tonight we have two very special guests on the show. Please give a warm welcome of X-Men in the Animated Series, Eric and Julia Leewald. And as it usually goes on Retro Game Night with us when we're playing video games, we don't just talk about gaming, but we talk about movies, things that pertain to video games, or memories in general of pop culture. Tonight we are going to go back in time to the 90s, the beautiful 90s, with X-Men the Animated Series. Um, Eric and Julia, I met you both after one of your panels at WonderCon a few years back. Uh, we had discussed at length uh, how impactful X-Men was and uh, what it did for me personally, as well as a friend of mine, how, how touched he was uh, by the show. Uh, could you enlighten our audience as to how this all started and what you did exactly on the show? A few decades ago, which is horrifying <laughs> to contemplate. Uh, I am a TV animation writer, and so is Eric. Right. Eric. We, we, we met at Disney back in the late 80s. If you watched Disney Afternoon, we might have corrupted your mind starting back then with good old Chippendales Rescue Rangers. Woo! Yes! A goof Troop, Darkwing Duck. Those shows. We well, met there. Yeah. And, yeah. <laughs> A collective thank you for all of that. Yes. So, thank and you. so as, as, as far as the X-Men show coming about, it's hard to imagine now, but uh, they tried to get an X-Men show going in Hollywood for about 10 or 15 years. People, this one lady, Margaret Lesh, who's like the greatest animation executive in the history of television, she believed it would be a great show. And no button. At the time, there were three networks: ABC, NBC, and CBS. And they just said, "Eh, you know, a few comic book people will watch that, but we don't have a big enough audience. You know, Marvel show would never work." So that 
that was what w she was faced with for about a dozen years of pitching this show. And so finally, she got, in 1990, she got made uh, uh, president of, of the kids' division of a brand new network called Fox, which was like a half a network at the time in 1990. It was on for about 12 hours a day. And she said, okay, the first two uh, uh, shows I'm going to greenlight are X-Men and Batman, and let's get going. And we had just, each of us finished up our three-year contracts at Disney TV Animation. And you had just come out of that and spent a year doing the second season? Right, the, no, the last season. The, oh, the last The final season. season. Final uh, season of? Of Beetlejuice at Fox. So there was a, uh, Margaret's right-hand man who supervised, who has hands-on on all these series. His name's Sidney Iwander, and it's one of the strangest, most wonderful men in show business. Uh, he, uh, he, he hired me to, to do a season of, uh, to supervise or show run a season of Beetlejuice for him. He'd worked with me before. And that went well enough that uh, in, in February 92, when word got out that Fox was about to commit to making an X-Men show, uh, when he was asked, well, who, sh who should run it, he, he picked me. And that's, I didn't really know the books at the time. It's just that I had a good relation. I'd written for this executive before, and he said, well, we know the tone we want, and we think Eric and his college buddy Mark Edens, who was our head writer, would be the two best guys for it. And so from there, I got to be among the, the pool of talent that, that wrote episodes for the series that first year and then in, in the rest of the five-year run there. So Eric, on TV, every episode you'll see a developer TV by, and that's, that's who this guy is. And on the ones that I got to write on, that'll be me. <laughs> So basically, you told us the story in regards to how it started. Um, we we are all big fans here, as you already as you already know. We've talked about it. Um, we do have a list of great questions for you. <laughs> we're we're going to put you through the ringer with questions. Um, you had one to start off. So I'm I'm going to have to refer back to notes because so, I can't remember everything. Um, major themes that we see throughout the show. Just diving right in. Um, Every single episode, I have not seen an episode yet that didn't refer to this. Uh, they consistently are regarding mutants to accept who they are as unique individuals. Was that something that you were trying to get across to audiences and to kids at the time, that it's okay to be who you are to embrace your own uniqueness? Yeah, uh, I mean, we didn't think of it that way at first, but what it was, you know, Julie and I have worked on dozens over the, I'm sorry to show how old we are, but <laughs> dozens of shows over the years, and this was the, 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 the greatest one we ever given an opportunity to work on. And then we looked at the, the core material, and you had this wonderful setup of, it's almost like classical tr Greek tragedy. You had people that were exceptional, but that scared everybody else and made them hated. And that's, and that's just, just like a, a wonderful... Uh, recipe for for story writing, and so we looked we looked at the books. Mark Eden's I laid out the first series, and we thought, well, part of the books is like super good mutants battling super bad mutants. It's kind of like live wrestling, and that's very cool and very fun. And I, lo I love wrestling, but we found it uh, much more interesting the half of the X Men comic books that had to do with these people trying to fit in to mainstream society and having mainstream society reject them and not consider them fully human. And so that, we, we skewed our story 
telling towards that focus on the X-Men versus battling super villains. I'd, I'd like to say on a, on a personal note, that's something that helped a lot of us growing up. Uh, I didn't find this out until I was an adult. I, I was cursed with chronic migraines growing up, and we found out later on part of why that's happened. I am literally a mutant. I have, I have a gene mutation. I have, my DNA is mutated. I have bone growths in my skull. I essentially grow horns. And it causes really crippling migraines for me. So growing up, I always felt like a little bit disenfranchised from everybody else because it would stop me from doing things I wanted to do. Uh, our player two, Kyle, over here, he's also got uh, some abnormalities in and amongst his, uh, his oh, physical body himself, sure. you know, with some webbing. He can swim in circles real fast because <laughs> he's got webbing on one foot. Um, but we... Uh, we, as, as oddballs in society, and both physically and, you know, just thinking on, on a different wavelength, having somebody say, hey, that's okay, is huge, whether it's an adult or whether it's, it's something you see on TV. So the fact that you guys went that direction made a lot of difference in people's lives. And I think, too, for me, one of the big things was, you're just born like this. This has nothing to do with a choice you've made or anything else, and especially that it sort of uh, announced itself as you're getting a little bit older. And then if anyone's ever survived puberty and adolescence, that's just a nightmare anyway. And then to, ha yeah. and then to have this potential mutation that can go anyway. You've got the poor Morlocks who aren't getting any kind of benefit from being a, mu being a mutant. You've got some of the X-Men who've got these amazing powers, but abilities, but, but still have tremendously conflicted uh, issues within themselves about who they are and how they fit in. And I believe it's really good because e even for those who don't feel like they are different, the show helped to realize that you know, they have feelings. They have, they have the ability to feel pain. They, they, they see that they're different. They know that they're different, but we should be able to accept that as well. Just looking back on the decades that have passed since the show happened, what happened, America? Did we teach you nothing? <laughs> Come on. I thought everybody liked this show and thought, yay. But, but again, just the differences that we either accept or don't accept within ourselves, within others. Um, and, and yet it's a big show with big things that blow up and people fly in the sky. But I really think uh, a genuine effort from the folks on the, other, on, on the other side trying to make this show work was dealing with the human element. Yeah, I definitely get, I can agree with that, uh, Julie. I think that the human element was the most important factor in doing a story that had really nothing to do on the point of view of the human standpoint, but it was from the mutant standpoint. So it was important to create that common ground so that we could understand. So there was another question that I had. So when we were re-watching the show, we, we really notice, you know, maybe it was a novelty when we were children, but when Beast would keep quoting all these literary figures, and then not only that, but then Rogue's unique Southern sayings. I mean, re-watching as adults, how much research did you do to help to write this out? Well, well that, those, those are kind of both my fault. Uh, the, the, two, our, the two main writers on the show and I uh, grew up in Tennessee and were college friends. At Started University of Tennessee, University Knoxville? University of Tennessee in Knoxville. And, and, uh, and so that was, we, were, we had a storehouse of memories for Rogue there. So that was, that was easy. The other part, the beast part, was just 
just a quirk of mine. I'd worked in animation for seven or eight years and you know, maybe worked on a dozen shows, a little bit here, a little bit there. And one of the things that superheroes do is when they, they have a call to action, it's actually a, a category that we're, we're told when we're writing stories, like, uh, you know, Kawabunga or whatever. You know, you, you've got a group of people and they say this thing before they go into the action. And I thought, well, Beast is so well-read, so erudite and so thoughtful that instead of screaming out some random word, he might think of an appropriate quote from a really obscure writer. And so um, in the Night of the Sentinels, when he's about to go into this danger, I, I looked up, it's just at a thesaurus, uh, something about feet, and there's this 300-year-old poem that said something about with raised feet and an obs you know, and. And I just put that in there because I thought, you know, he's read every book on the planet and he'd know to say this here. And everybody liked it around, you know, in our crew. So I started challenging the writers to say, well, when Beast's in an episode and he's got a specific moment, if you can come up with a really obscure quote, a lot of them end up being from Shakespeare, but it's hard to fault. But uh, so we just, it became a thing that the writers looked forward to doing for Beast. And as writers, we like to think we're the smartest people in the room. <laughs> we're not, but Beast is. But at least this was a way for us to kind of like try and, like you said, challenge each other to out-Beast each other with an appropriate quote. And again, decades ago, there was no easy internet. It had just started. And you had a Bartlett's book of quotations. Yeah. And that was it. That was as far as we could go in terms of research for this, but that's what, that was one of the things that, uh, yeah, flipping through the pages of Bartlett's trying to find quotes for Beast. So would you be able to elaborate a little bit on Rogue? Cause I, re I remember in the Night of the Sentinels, she says something, I think it was in one of those two episodes, where like, oh, they're jumpier than a, a ring-tailed cat yeah, in a room full, full of, of long, cha chairs. long chairs or something. <laughs> you know, I think, Mark, I think Mark, Mark Edens came up with that. He and his brother uh, grew up on a farm in Middle Tennessee, and so they were were even more full of uh, southernisms <laughs> than, than than I was. I think it's you know you're about as nervous as a long-tailed cat in a room full of rocking chairs. Yes, and it's one of those things you listen to it and you go what, but then you go oh I get it okay yeah. <laughs> it I, I, I had a question regarding so you, you you mentioned about Beast and then this case Roe quoting her. Um, did you feel that pr when producing and writing these specific lines that you had it in mind to reach not just the target audience that knew X Men but did it reach a, a point where you're reaching towards children to be educated? Would that be part of what you're aiming for? Well, when you say educated, are, are you talking about educated about the world of Marvel? or, or in, or? in this case, words that weren't let's say, uh, necessarily always used in everyday life for children, especially quotations that Beast was saying, yeah. that this was something I, brand new. Actually, I think we were more self-indulgent than that. I just think <laughs> we were writing for ourselves and, and for other adults. We'd a lot of us that write, that have, have written in animation over the years, we've been frustrated because people in Hollywood tell you to dumb it all down because, oh, our main, our main audience is going to be six to ten-year-olds, and so, oh, you, you don't want to use big words. We actually had a show called Mummies Alive where we were sat down and told to take out a bunch of the Egyptian words because this would confuse the children. I mean, it's, it's very frustrating being a writer on shows where you're not allowed to be challenge the audience and we'd all remembered being kids and when you're six or seven or eight or ten you know you're curious about stuff that you don't 
quite know or that maybe your older brother or sister gets but you don't get and so that was a good thing to us we thought well we're not going to do this at all we want to we want to push this and the main characters in in x-men are except for jubilee are all adults in their 20s and 30s i mean wolverine was like 95 so <laughs> we didn't want to write them as something for little kids to just get and and we were warned and they thought the show wouldn't work and they were very scared they got a lot of pushback from advertisers and local television stations saying what are all these dark uh, adult uh, scripts we're seeing you know we think when this comes out there's not going to be a kid in america that's going to watch this or, or buy the toys why are you doing this and we just all of us the writers and the artists and the executives all had had a faith that the kids would get it and that they look up to it. And they, they even said, oh, you can't have connected stories. Kids are, are not going to remember from the episode before. And so Little did they know. Yeah, we, 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 we fought that hard. And finally, our editor said, well, look, we can do a previously, and that'll catch everybody up. Come on. And, and so they let us. It'll save you 30 seconds of new animation you don't have to pay for. And you'd be amazed how tight the pennies got pinched on this, but that was one of the things that allowed us to go forward with the previously on X-Men recaps was that it cost them less that way. Uh, I did not know that. See, that was actually one of the big questions. When we started discussing what questions we had, that was my very first one, was were you looking to make a show that didn't placate kids? Because, I mean, even in the first season, just making – you saw my notations before. I'm a nerd. Um, (laughs) Shakespeare, Dostoevsky, you had (laughs) subtitles for Russian language. I'm, I'm sorry, there's not an animated show on the planet at that point in America that did subtitles. They just put a Russian accent on an English speaker. I want to, again, shout out to Margaret Lesh, the president of Fox Kids, and Sydney Iwater, her right-hand guy at Fox Kids, because the edict as a writer on the show we got was, do not write down to kids. You write up. Write this as dark and as hard and as tough as you can on this show. Fox Kids is going to, we, we are tiny, we don't have the kind of you know, reach that ABC, NBC, CBS has. We're willing to take these chances, and they were willing to stand by that. So it was a nothing-to-lose scenario, so let's make it good. Uh, absolutely. I mean, that w- there were a half a dozen things, that, elements that came together like that that allowed us to do this. And one of them was that Fox was new and tiny. At the time, they had like 5 or 6% of the audience and the other three networks had 90-something percent On Saturday mornings. Again, yeah. a reminder, yeah. Saturday mornings used yeah. to be a kid's Saturday yeah. morning block. So That's where you they needed cartoons. to get noticed, and they were willing to take chances that n- none of the other networks would have let us do X-Men. This it, wouldn't have done it, period. They didn't let you do it. No one bought it. Yeah, so of, it's too adult. And so speaking of adult and chances, that takes me to my next question. In terms of uh, the amount of uh, quote-unquote violence and censorship involved, obviously the first two episodes of Night of the Sentinels had to deal with a death of a mutant, and you had Morph that died, and that is or the first time he? I personally recall the death of a animated character that I had seen that not only you, you saw the death of a character, but you saw the rest of the team trying to recover from that, especially Wolverine's point of view, where he blamed himself. How do you feel that that played a part in uh, the animated series to foreshadow what was to be beyond? I'll say from where I was sitting, it that was like one of the, the, the key, one of the linchpins in making the show work. And when you and Mark Eden yeah. said, Mark Edens is a student of history, as was uh, Michael Edens, and you'd studied history. Yeah, and, and we just, we all uh, needed to show, we were, we were tired of pretend at cartoony uh, violence with no consequences. And we wanted to make sure, it took us about a month to convince 
the, uh, the network and the network sensor, the broadcast standards lady, that we needed to kill an X-Men in the first story. And we just said, and she said, "What we, you know, you don't do this in cartoons. You don't do this in children's program. They're going to be traumatized, whatever." And we just said, "Look, we've got to let everybody know that there are consequences to being heroic. We wanted to tell the most heroic stories we could, and if there are, if it's just uh, patty cake pretend, then they're real. You're not really being that heroic. You're not risking that much, and so." What clinched it for this wonderful lady, her name's uh, Aubrey Co- uh, Avery Coburn. Aubrey. Avery Coburn. Head uh, of Broadcast Standards and Practices at Fox Kids. Uh, luckily, at the time. she was understanding. If she had said no, we couldn't have done it. If she had said no on, all, on Wolverine's claws, Wolverine wouldn't have had claws. It was up to her. And so when we, I finally talked her into it, we said, look, it's not going to be on screen, which she wouldn't let us do. It's not going to be, it's not going to be gratuitous, and we're going to focus on the rest of the X-Men and their grief um, over the loss rather than the loss itself. And that actually made it more effective. You know, we, the, they cut it, to, the editor did a beautiful job cutting it together. You cut it together, there are half other other X-Men who are reacting, oh my God, oh my God, we've sensed, we've lost somebody. And so it all becomes part of um, this family's grief as opposed to, oh, let's watch somebody get killed. But the end result was the thing that Mark and I insisted upon, and that was to show the audience that being an X-Men had consequences. Now, just a bit of that Morph's journey, Morph's story. Honest to God, everybody here, he was supposed to stay dead. Morph was supposed <laughs> to stay dead. I that was the that. whole plan. What happened was, and this is where kids' TV comes into play, no one knew if, uh, if X-Men was going to go past the first 13. So it was written as 13 episodes. That was it. When they realized they might be doing this again for another season, they sat down with a kids' focus group, which you shouldn't do. And they said to the kids, Hey, kids, you like X-Men. Who's your favorite character? And they said, um, by a large majority, Morph. Because he made Wolverine laugh. And what? they love Morph. But he was in there for like... He was in there for four ep- minutes. He yep. was in there for he an episode and a half, like four <laughs> minutes of screen time. But he was the one that was funny, and he he broke Wolverine's heart. With That's his death. amazing. And so we'll, all the empathy that we wrote into all the other characters for this loss affected all these children, and they all voted to say we want to see Wol- uh, Morph again. So the executive Cindy calls me and says, Eric, I know you fought a month to be able to kill Morph. But we've just found out he's the kids of America's favorite X-Men. Please find a way to bring him back. So what happened then, if you follow the show, end of 13 episodes, it was to end with the happy couple you know, uh, on the beach and Professor X saying, oh, let's go forward together. As a, you know, and then realizing if you've got to bring back Morph in some way rather than just it was a soap opera death. It was with the idea of bringing him back as someone who had suffered terribly because he thought he had been abandoned by his by his his teammates, his family, and I think that ended up so. Episode fourteen, fifteen in the second season. We're Morph coming back. Morph's coming back, but now he's suffering tr- truly from PTSD. And, and it actually let us write some more some interesting stories with him. It made him a very effective problem for the X Men. And there's a little twist there if you guys remember the end of the first season when Gene a- when when uh, Scott asked Gene to marry him and she says yes, and we're about to fade out on the first season. 
there suddenly you see that there's someone watching them on a screen and he cackles and says something about sinister you know <laughs> that was added in after that was added in like three months later when we decided to bring morph back and we decided well we need somebody really creepy and crafty and into genetic uh, to to have been the reason that morph appeared to be dead that he's been brought back so we we grafted on this little tiny little portent of Sinister coming in the second season. So when we were writing the second season, they ran, ran back and put that on on the, on the end of the, the last, of the first season. So we had some interesting story arcs that you covered. Uh, now, Morph was, to my knowledge, and correct me if I'm wrong, was written into the series. Yes. Correct. He was, there's, there's, a, there's a story there, too. When we were asked to write Night of the Sentinels, and we decided we needed to kill somebody, we had picked out the uh, picked out the other nine X Men, and we picked and we looked through the books because we always wanted to take stuff direct that was from the books whenever we could. And we looked through the books and uh, a recent X Men from the 70s that had that had been an X Men for a short time and died was Thunderbird, Native American character. So when the script was written and even the storyboards were starting to be done, it was in the script it was Thunderbird that got killed, not Morph. Morph didn't exist in the show. And then somebody at Fox realized, well, wait a minute, this is going to be the only Native American character that we see in the X-Men, and you kill him off, in, you know, in the first episode, we, guys, you know, we can't do that. So we said, okay, who do we replace him with? We looked back through all the history of the X-Men books, and there, was a, uh, there were two or three characters we could have picked, but one of them, a fun one, was called Changeling, which who is a shapeshifter and a funny guy. And he sacrificed himself. And he sacrificed himself to save Charles Xavier's life back, you know, in 1971, or I don't know the time. But uh, so we picked him, and we put him in, and it was written as Changeling, and it's designed as Changeling. If you look at the old comic books, Morph and Changeling are the, look exactly the same. Well, what happened was the lawyers got a hold of the script and said, well, DC also has a character named Changeling, and so we're going to get a lawsuit. And I said, well, but Marvel's Changeling was like three years older. There's no re they can't really win this. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. It's going to, could be a lawsuit for us. Change his name. So I just changed his name from Changeling to Morph. He's Changeling. And then little insider tidbit here. If you watch the intro again, and you see them charging at the two teams charging at each other, there appears to be a Native American character on the evil side. What had happened was... They'd already Thunder designed Thunderbirds, Thunderbird. so they threw them in, in the title. But they threw him in the title as his evil twin, Warpath, but no one says that. But it's just that because they'd already designed Thunderbird, and it's like, oh man, it was a neat design, don't want to waste it. So that's why you see him running the way you see him running. And if it had been a different world, he might have been the one who had been sacrificed. Now, we, we, we talked about Morph and how that he was in, uh, incorporated into the series. Uh, one, I know for a fact everyone will agree, probably in this room, one of the greatest story arcs to date is the Phoenix Saga. And that, that one spanned, what was it, six parts? Five. Five, Five parts. parts. And that was an amazing story arc. And, of course, you borrowed all these from the comics. And now, as far as the story arcs that were covered, do you wish... There were any that could, that you would have done, like that were not covered. 
actually there was a, a real mixture in the creative community uh, of the writers and artists of those of us that really didn't know the books very well and so we weren't fans, we didn't have an agenda, we didn't have favorite epi issues, we didn't have anything that we were trying to do besides imagine what was the best Wolverine story we could tell or the best Storm story we could tell. So those of us like like me, we there there weren't there wasn't anything that we that we wished we could have done, but we couldn't. On the artist side, most of the artists were crazed fanboys that had read every issue three times, and they were pushing some stuff. And a couple of the writers that freelance writers that wrote for us were also that big fanboys that would come up would be, would push stories that were their favorite issues. But the way we tended to craft the stories was uh, imagine what's like the biggest problem for Rogue or what's the, the most dramatic uh, crisis we can give to Beast and let's write a story around it and then pick bits and pieces from the comic history from like an encyclopedia of the comic history to flesh out the story but we we started almost the first out of the first 26 uh, there was only one that we just grabbed from a comic, and that was Days of Future Past, which Julia wrote half of. And the rest which, were... Excellent we just, adaptation, by the way. My favorite episode, personally. And, 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 the, and the rest were, okay, uh, Storm's got claustrophobia, let's give her a challenge with the Morlocks. Or Rogue, Rogue is so, up, so unhappy that she can't touch another human being. Let's have a, let's have a, a conspiracy that pretends to have a cure for mutancy and tempts her to try it. So, so we start with the character and then build with bits and pieces from the books. But I think it is, I, we're grateful to hear that people, oh, it, it's all from the books. It really, it really wasn't, but in terms of translating the books into a half-hour animated show. Uh, it, keeping the spirit, keeping the spirit, the spirit of the spirit. books right. and being really religiously careful to not do anything wrong with the characters. We had a... Um, we had a Marvel advisor. Marvel didn't have, this is weird, because it was a tiny, it was a little comic book company at the time. They were about to go bankrupt. They didn't have really power over the show. They didn't have Final Cut, Fox did. But we sent every word that we wrote to them, and if we wrote, say, a side of Wolverine that just felt completely wrong to them, they'd let us know, and we'd adjust it. But this was back in 1992 through 1995. No, no internet, no email. No, yeah, no internet, there was no we, email. We faxed things to each other. We faxed things from CVS Pharmacy to Marvel in New York because Marvel didn't have an outpost in Los Angeles at the time. And their businesses closed at 5 o'clock on Friday and reopened at their time on Monday morning. And we were three hours later. And if we missed them on Friday, there was no cell phone. It, 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 there were times when you got memos and it's like, is the show going to be completely knocked off the rails? Well, we'll find out Monday, because we can't do a thing about it over the weekend. Next time on X-Men. Ne <laughs> yeah, next time versus previously. Um, Josh, you and I spoke for a moment regarding uh, you and your wife and regarding the character you liked. Uh, did you want to tell them about that? Yes. Uh, my wife and I really like uh, Gambit. Uh-huh. And... We really liked how he was portrayed. He was really cool. He always seemed to be one step ahead of everything. And, but he was still secretive. He had his, you know, he had that side to him. But I wanted to know how you felt about the character, and are you disappointed that he hasn't had better representation since yeah. the series? Well, if you mean, is Channing Tatum going to make a movie that I get to go watch? <laughs> 
let me just say, and I think I mentioned this to you guys earlier, I, I'm so grateful to have been a part of what X-Men the Animated Series was and, and what it has become in terms of, again, at the time, you could ask people in the street, name me some superheroes. You might get Batman, you might get Superman, you might get Spider-Man, you might get Wonder Woman. But oh, most good. people didn't know the X-Men characters. There was a fervent fan base within the comic book community, but that wasn't enough. To, oh, there you go. But that wasn't enough in terms of network television at the time to keep a show going forward. Your job was to write to attract enough people to keep a show going forward. And the fact that from that, Margaret Lesh was the one who went to Fox Films immediately. Guys, we're getting good ratings. You guys need to start thinking about a live-action film. No. Next year, guys, great live-action film. No. Can, can you still do a live-action film, please? <laughs> <laughs> no, please? But yeah, it's, it's hard to remember. When we started in 92, there had not been a Marvel movie. And there had been a half a dozen attempts at Marvel TV shows, and they were kind of written down to little kids, and I they didn't like really the work very Hulk. well. I love yeah, my Bruce Banner. There was, there was, there was a, a live-action Incredible Hulk in the 70s that worked pretty well, but that was, that was about it. And, and we were actually told... Margaret told us, uh, she said, look, you guys are going to have to understand, 85 to 90% of the people that turn on the television, because we'd have 10 or 11 million people watching every week, 80, you know, the large majority of them won't know what an X-Men is, or they won't know what a mutant is. They have to figure it out from the show. You can't assume. because You're the little group of people that know the books. <laughs> Nobody else is going to know the books. And that was one of the reasons that the opening is so long and so character focused because we wanted to make sure that by the time they started the episode they knew who these eight or nine people were they kept uh we kept on being told oh it's too challenging the kids will get confused now they wouldn't but still that was the state of pop fandom at the time x-men were really not a part of the culture no and again if you watch the intro next time you don't skip on disney plus <laughs> When each character is introduced and their name shows up in a font behind them, Larry Houston, it was Larry Houston and Will Minio who over the course of what, one long weekend managed to craft that, that piece. Uh, Larry had contacted Marvel and said, okay, uh, what kind of art do you have for each of the characters? They didn't have any. He had to craft each no of the logos. individual he fonts. He just had to draw those character. logos. That was him on a weekend, just, okay, this is different. Okay, this is different. Okay, and that's where that came from. That was not something that Marvel had in their back pocket to just say, here's how we represent each character. That was something that the fanboy artist brought to it, and then, okay, here we go. So when you see those logos, that was just done on the fly. So did you have any characters then that really intrigued you then as you were writing? Well, as an, on, the, on the team side, uh, we, we all of us writers, we just kind of loved Beast, just because we got <laughs> to pretend we were showing off and being smart. But compare and contrast to the genius that is Batman the Animated Series. You've got Batman, and, and then you've got the, the whirl of people around him. In X-Men, you've got a team of eight people. You have a, a family, uh, all, and you, we wanted them all to have equal weight on the team the best we could. And so we, we tried to do that, and, and it made for... I think easier for us to tell stories. If if you're if you're a fan of the Batman show, oftentimes you're more a fan of the villains. There's this rogue gallery of 30 different cool villains that come at this one guy. But the core team on that is just basically Batman, 
you know, Robin and Alfred. It's not, there's not a lot going on. You don't, we don't spend seven episodes finding out Alfred's backstory. Um, but we wanted to spend seven episodes finding every single one of our family of X-Men's backstory because we wanted them all to be lead characters. And that, yeah. So I said the challenge was trying to tell any other stories because there, was, there were so many characters to service just in the service of the X-Men on the team. And the, the decisions, the, the, the choosing of who the quote-unquote bad guys would be uh, was, was part of the challenge, was making sure yeah. that they didn't overshadow or, or steal too much focus. Yeah. And but then how do you make sure you don't forget, oh, yeah, Gambit's over here. Let's not forget about him. Or make yeah. sure we remember that Rogue's over here. That was a real balancing act. Yeah, and, and so for, as far as favorites, because we asked this a lot at cons, uh, Julie's favorite is Beast because he's so romantic, and she came up with the be- the the Beast love story, the uh, oh, Beauty and the Beauty Beast. and the Beast, written eventually by Stephanie Matheson, and I just ah, oh, my heart, my heart. Yeah. But but for, for me, since I was this thirty-something guy that was supervising the writers, and we had over five years, we had twenty different people that ended up getting a writing credit on the show. That's how many different writers we used. We couldn't they we couldn't have a staff. They didn't kind of allow that. It was just like, okay, who's ever available? And if, if I had a favorite writer like Mark and he got another job, I just, I'd lose him for six months. So I have to pick somebody else and pick somebody else. But anyway, so I felt like in trying to manage all these different writers with these different talents and different tones and different points of view, that I was kind of like Xavier, that I was herding cats <laughs> and that I was like the father, the old dad. Uh, who who had to keep the family together and keep everybody on the same page? And that comes with a certain sense of responsibility, but also pressure along with that too, because oh, of yeah. all the that's involved with everyone. Yeah, so I had serious sympathy, sympathy for Xavier. I'll say this though: I I truly love the the bone deep connection between Magneto and Xavier. I love that you can strip it all away and go, no, really, they are best friends, and they are on completely opposite sides of how to handle the human mutant issues, and they're both right. And I think that just made for some really compelling stories. And will continue, hopefully. You know, just that, that they are... That's something the movies have done really well. I mean, they've, they've I was, dropped I the ball on some yes. things, but they Absolutely. got Xavier and Magneto's friendship. Yeah, it is a very complex relationship between them where they're, they are on opposite sides, but they're really not enemies. They really don't want to kill each other, but they know they are on opposite sides, and, you know, they need to get where they need to get. So, I had kind of an interesting thought. So, for, first episode, Night of the Sentinels, part yes. one. Uh, when, when they're in the mall. Yeah. First scene, essentially. Yeah. And, and Storm announces she is going to use her powers. Yes. And, and Rogue spouts off, easy on the speeches, sugar. Yeah. <laughs> t- t- tell me about that. Well, we were just trying. Why? Uh, we were we were trying to. Uh, one, uh, it's a real challenge, writing a pilot script, the opening story for a series that you've never seen the series before. You don't know the characters. You don't know who anybody is. Setting up the world and setting up each of their characters is a real challenge, and it, it, it it's it's about the hardest thing that writers have to do on TV. Uh, in fact, executives will often say, "Well, I want to." I want to see one of your good stories. Show me episode four. Because they understand that your first episode, you've got to lay out all this information so that people learn the thing as quickly and as naturally as you can. 
and that can kind of compromise the story, get in the way. But Mark was so was so good at that that I think that the thing that the thing in the the mall, all we were thinking about was, okay, we've got like five seconds to introduce each of these ten characters and get them involved in some action so that it's not bogged down with uh, information. Uh, so that was just the way for the two women to have to show their attitudes. That was it. I really thought you were going to bring up Storm magically transforming into her Storm uniform because that never happened again. I'm not going to question never that. Happened that again. Never happened again. No, that was, yeah, yeah, the, the ex, yeah that, was, well, that was kind of a cheat. Are you I kidding? That was a quick change artist. That's amazing. But that was, again, one of those things. It's the first episode. Things are, you're trying to set up this whole world. That happened, but upon further reflection, that didn't happen again, meaning the costume change and that sort of stuff. But the interaction between the two women, that was, that was establishing the characters. It, it, was, it wasn't more of a moment of self-awareness that this would be continuing to be a oh, thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah ab- absolutely. I mean, we, we, never, we never tried to see uh, scenes as just being... You know, bits of the plot to fur- to further the storyline. We always saw it as a uh, as a uh, an opportunity to reveal more of the people of the characters' character, and it, uh, otherwise, I mean, it, you know, writing it like a 21-minute story, it goes really fast, and you need to have a certain amount of action given our genre, or you know, little kids will tune out, or people won't be satisfied. Um, and so we knew we'd have to have a certain amount of mutant action, and we had to reveal the powers as much as we could every week. And there were like half a dozen things we had to touch. But, um, but so there was, we never wanted to miss a chance to reveal the character. Like you're talking about Gambit's character. We didn't want him to just go through an episode and not be Gambity. You know, uh, you can do that if you're not careful. But I, th- I think he's introduced, you know, Hitting on the the card saleswoman yeah. in the mall about oh he'll, he'll character play established <laughs> he'll play solitaire unless he has someone to play with you know <laughs> oh my god okay there you go there's your gambit so uh, you spend a lot of time obviously spending uh, developing these characters do you feel that because you did such a good job individually establishing each one um, you got to know them very well obviously and do you feel that the live action movies portrayed that uh, the way you would have liked looking back. Well, I'm going to jump in and also just bring up Batman to compare and contrast. You got the call February 1992, and the pilot episode premiered Halloween night 1992. That's, what was that, ten mo- nine uh, months? Uh, eight, eight months. Eight months from the day you got the call to the day the first thing aired. Batman went into development a year earlier, and then it self-premiered that, October, that September. So they had a lot more time in terms of developing stuff uh and you just kind of had to figure stuff out well, well to, to 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 your question about the movies right i mean uh, and and we don't talk trash about the movies we've seen them all there have been like a, a 10 or 11 whatever and and we think there's a mixture of some of them were really successful and we really love them um i think there's been a mixture of success in their portrayal of the characters i, I don't think you could do better than Xavier and Magneto and Wolverine. I mean, just as a start, those three were, were magnificent. Uh, Hugh I, I, Jackman's a little tall. Yeah, yeah. He's a yeah, little tall. Yeah, yeah but, but... I'll give him that. But, yeah, we, but, don't, but we won't split hairs. Where, 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 I think, where I think they didn't... 
I don't, I don't think they spend as much time or focus on the female characters as we did. Uh, Storm and Rogue in our show were incredibly powerful and central. And Rogue ended up being changed into a young Rogue who was kind of more of a, you know, the, the teen girl character. And to be honest, despite the presence of a magnificent actress in Halle Berry, I don't think they gave much for Storm to do. I mean, we, we I mean, first of all, they don't have her flying. And we don't have, I mean, so it just was, I think in the making of the movies, they focused on other people and they let three or four of the characters kind of get lost in the shuffle. Again, like with, with Gambit, they never quite figured out how to use him. And that's okay. I mean, they came up with other people. They, I think they did nice work with Beast. Um, you know, Jean Grey is a pretty strong woman in the movies. But they, you know, nothing's perfect. And there, there are episodes of our show, which I wish we had back, which I wish we'd done better. Uh, I think we, we kind of forgot about Morph for about 20 episodes. <laughs> but Long forgotten. But, uh, yeah, so, so, yeah, you Nothing's perfect, and I just think we were thrilled that they did the movies, and we thrilled about what they did beautifully, that they, that, that they did well. And again, X-Men the Animated Series, you, you chose very specific characters out of the 20-30 year history of the X-Men comic books to then be the X-Men Animated Series team. And here they were making the movies 10 years later, and they kind of chose the same team. So I, I take that as a real feather in the cap of the show. Yeah, we felt, we felt good about that. The, the writer, uh, the credited writer of the first two X-Men movies, David Hayter, who's a very nice guy and who we worked with on something later, uh, told us that, that, none of, uh, that none of the filmmakers uh, picked up a comic book. They just watched our show. And that was a real that was a real compliment. Big to us. compliment, absolutely. Yeah. And I think yeah. part of it is that we'd done the kind of the heavy lifting of translating comic book writing to screenwriting because if you think about it in comic books, half the stuff is internal thought bubbles. You know, you've got you open the, a spread page and you've got eleven characters all talking to each other, all posed. And if you have the, if you're reading a comic book, you can gradually absorb all that. Right. But TV and movies are very linear. And you can't really get into their heads unless there's. You, you made it a lot easier for the for the for the actors to research in encapsulated right. half hour form. So, so we, we had yep. to make that adjustment, and it seemed to go well. So I think that's probably why they spent the time watching the show because we'd already kind of turned it more into screenplay writing than comic writing. Right. And and it was shown like I was I was talking to Damien about this a, a few weeks ago, watching the show as an adult after seeing the movies, it's clear that these guys took a lot of cues from your show. Have you noticed the Alkali Lake complex in the second X-Men movie is nearly identical to the Sentinel complex? I, no, I and have. There, there is a, <laughs> Fans know a lot more you'll than be re Rewatch, seriously. And there's part a, of James notes. There's a setup in, uh, in Night of the Sentinels when, when Cyclops and, and some of the others are waiting outside the complex yeah. that they say almost verbatim a line and a setup at that guard shack that they used in The Gifted, the X-Men TV show that they did on, on Fox. Oh. Almost we, I love, by the way. Yeah, we, we, enjoy, we enjoyed The Gifted. And yeah. the fact that they used our theme song as a ringtone. <laughs> and once opened previously on The Gifted, which I thought was spectacular. Josh, you mentioned to me um, regarding a question for, for the Lee Walls, uh, Wolverine and the live action movies. Um, did you want to relate that to them? Yeah, I, I know. I know you mentioned that Wolverine was, you know, pretty popular. You enjoyed it, Hugh Jackman's portrayal, but I, I did notice that 
he was a lot different than in the animated series. He was a lot more, I, I would say maybe gruff, <laughs> I guess, would be the right way to say it. You mean in the series? Yes, yeah. in the yeah. series. <laughs> well, again, Wolverine, for X-Men the Animated Series, he was one member of a team, and he was allowed to be mean and surly and bitter and angry because he wasn't the center of the focus, I think. Yeah, and, and yeah, and, I, th and so, uh, so we, we, I think we pushed that, those parts of his character more than they did in the movies just to, to keep a, a distinction among all the different characters so that he was, I mean, we were thinking about characters like, you know, people like Clint Eastwood as Dirty Harry and, and just, just people, I, it really, the writers really got a sense of this guy has lived 95 years, he's seen a lot of struggle and misery and he's, he must have 15, 15 pre, uh, old girlfriends that all want to kill him. Or they're uh, dead already. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's, a guy, it's a guy that has struggled a lot. Yet at the same time, when he was, he was gruff like that for most of the episode, then you saw the soft side of him. And he, he, he'd become a real romantic. You know, people, Gene broke his heart. I mean, he was, he, uh, so we loved pu pushing him. In fact, there's a, there's a, a line, I mean, this, it's funny you use the word gruff, but on the cover of Night of the Sentinel script, the first script that was ever written, uh, Mark gave it to me, and I sent it back to him with some notes on the inside of the script, but the only note I put on the outside of the script was gruffer Wolverine, <laughs> and just asking to make Wolverine nastier. And giving kids TV uh, Wolverine more than once, you egg-sucking piece of gutter trash. I will not try and do what <laughs> yeah, Cal Dodd did. It's, it's, from, it's, it's from the Wild Bunch. It's from the Peckinpah movie. But because, because we couldn't, we couldn't, we couldn't uh, curse. I mean, in, But in it sounded nasty. I remember yeah. hearing it. I was like, ooh. Yeah, I, I, felt like it was, <laughs> I felt like it was pushing the limit on, on some of it. Yeah. Well, and in the pilot episode, and again, starts at the top with Margaret Lesh, Sydney Eyewater, and Avery Coburn, Broadcast Standards and Practices, Wolverine comes off the, the jet and he comes over and he punches Cyclops in the gut. And the next time I use the claws. Because he's in such grief over Morph's death. That was the one time to our memory that that kind of human anybody, on human... Any X-Men ever punched anybody. Right. I mean, it's, it's hard to imagine, but we, we, you, couldn't, you couldn't really hit anybody. You couldn't draw blood. We had all this big action. We had cities exploding and supervillains fighting superheroes. And we really, the, the, there was a limit. There's a definite limit to the, 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 act, you know, the sex and violence that we could show. We had people falling in love with each other all the time. But that, again, we were, told, we were resisted through this. Oh, you know, kids aren't going to get this. But, you know, kids get attachment to other people. And so we, we thought that for the storytelling and for the kind of melodrama of it all, we, we loved watching when people felt desperately about each other. And that was, you know, that was one of another of the adult things we did. Yeah, I realized that when we were re-watching the series that in one of the episodes, they take in Sabretooth, he had gotten hurt, and they took him to the mansion... And then later on, he was able to escape, and he started fighting Wolverine. And at the very end, he kind of like sucker slashes, not yeah. sucker punches, but sucker slashes Wolverine. <laughs> and I realized that he left three red you know, slashes into him. And now, that was, was the only time we were allowed to do that. That was the only time. Yeah. Oh, wow. Because I noticed, I mean, there was no blood, there was no splatter, but it just, 
his his suit was torn and you saw red. Yeah. And so I was actually kind of surprised. I'm like, wow, it al- they allowed this. I, I think she let it through unintentionally. I, I think the <laughs> I think the artists did it, and there just wasn't time to to reshoot it. But that was also a function of the first well, in the first season. Exactly how fast does Wolverine recover? It wasn't really clear. There, you know, there, we were sort of making it up on the fly. So there are a couple episodes he gets banged up and he has bandages because he doesn't instantly heal, which he kind of does yeah. later. That was kind of an issue, a little bit of an issue we had in the movies. We didn't want Wolverine to be Superman. We wanted Wolverine, if he you know, walked up and you know, put a you know, bullet through his eye, he's dead. You know, he <laughs> does, we wanted him to have a healing power, but we wanted it to be much more gradual and we didn't want to ever get a sense because it's really hard writing for uh, a character that can't really be killed. Uh, it, unless you make it funny like, uh, uh, my, my mind just went like uh, Ryan Reynolds. Oh, oh Deadpool. Yeah, unless, <laughs> unless, you, unless you make fun of it, it's, it's, a di- it's difficult to create j- jeopardy and drama for somebody that, well, so what if he's been shot by a bazooka? He'll just... He'll, he'll just heal. And we think, I, I think that in the movies they erred on the side of making him in, invulnerable and that was a problem. That was, that was a bit of a problem for me. Yeah, I remember in the third one when uh, Jean Grey, Dark Phoenix, she keeps kind of blasting him and he's like healing half his chest at a time. I'm like, okay, that, that's, that's considerable. And then in the series, you know, he has the slashes and he's bandaged for a couple of days, but then later on when he's infected with the techno virus from Apocalypse, yeah. he heals from that almost pretty, immediately. Pretty quickly, yeah. So, uh, I, I, we'd stretch it. But work in progress. <laughs> yeah, of course. It's always going to be a work in progress. Speaking of work in progress, uh, before I wrap anything up, I wanted to ask you personally if there's any upcoming projects that we should all know about that you both are working on. Oh. Or can you say? That can be said. <laughs> Yes. Or or just do this <laughs> and zip your mouth. Well, there, there's there's one that we just finished for for Marvel that we can't really talk about yet. Uh, no one leap out of your seats. It is not a new season. It's, it's, it's not a continuation. It is not yeah. animated series. A, but, lo- but. a lot a lot of people ask about that because I mean they love the show and they'd love to see another season. And unfortunately, once about a year ago, I think it was on a podcast, a fan asked me, if you were to do a sixth season, what would you do? And I just I came up with something on the podcast. And like three days later, it's all over the web, and it's, it's re- referenced in The Hollywood Reporter, and oh, they're doing the sixth season, and it's coming back, and it's this, and it's this, and the original people. And it wasn't. It was just me saying, finally, after like the ninth time a fan asked me, well, what would you have done on the sixth season? I said, well... I was on to another job, but if you pushed me, I would have done this with the team. And it had a life of its own. But as of now, we'd lo- we obviously, almost the entire cast and the writers and the artists are all still alive, thank goodness. And we'd love to do, we'd love to do it again. And now that Disney has all the rights, they can. For, for a long time, they were split between Disney and Fox, and they didn't even want to talk to us about the show. They didn't want to talk to us about doing this book at the time, three years ago, because... You know, it's it's odd, but in Hollywood, Disney and Fox, if, if you have competitors, they don't want to do a thing to help their competitor. So no one was interested. Uh, and now, now they're all interested in doing X-Men projects. We hope they call us. Yes, we're, <laughs> they know our phone number. <laughs> we, we we ju- I just want to make sure you guys are still working because we absolutely love oh, your yeah. work. We well, love everything you, yes. you do. Um, all the past... 
all the past work that you've done has affected us all. Um, I think I would speak for everybody here and worldwide, nationwide, that you've uh, given us a big privilege to be on our show. Uh, personally, uh, this is just me. To you guys, I would personally love to thank you, the opportunity to thank you for what you did in my childhood. It's definitely changed me and uh, a few of my friends near me that I've told talked to you about. Um, so keep it up, and we really, really enjoy speaking with you every time. Thank you, Damien. Thank you so much. We are now, unfortunately, out of time and out of show. Did everyone have a good time this evening? <laughs> After the show, uh, in about, um, about five minutes or so, we're going to meet uh, in the back room where Eric and Julie are going to do a meet and greet, and they have some merchandise, uh, cool stuff to talk about. <laughs> Uh, so if you'd like to mosey on over there, we're going to be back in the in the back room area. Including the, sh including the uh, wonderful book, Previously on X-Men. Oh, and, and may I? We are on Twitter, and we're trying to do more. But we're yes. on Twitter at X-Men TAS, which is our abbreviation for X-Men the Animated Series. So please follow us or find us. That's usually me every day sitting there doing something. So, yeah. Perfect. Let's give a big applause for our guests, Eric and Julia. Thank you for being on our show. And let's also keep the applause going for Tim, Phoenix, and Five Threads for putting our show tonight here. Thank you. If you do the internets, we are on Instagram at retro underscore game night for our info on our live shows and special events. Uh, you can find us all there at retrogamenightpodcast.com where you can find our podcast in all formats. Uh, also, don't forget to subscribe on YouTube. We're on YouTube now. Uh, uh, until then, we love you guys all. Uh, until next time, stay mutant and proud. Good night, everybody. Woo! Woo!